a new year full of surprises. But one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services. So when postage goes up, your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com is like your own personal post office, wherever you are. You can even take orders on the go with the mobile app. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Schedule package pickups, automatically find the cheapest and fastest shipping options, and seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. There's even a supply store where you can stock up on mailing supplies, labels, even printers. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. All you need is a computer or phone and printer. Take a chunk out of your mailing and shipping costs this year with Stamps.com. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Hello, everybody. Thank you very much for coming out. It's good to see your lovely faces. Uh, we are The Blizzard. My name is Marcus from The Football Ramble. Let me introduce you to the panel. On the end, Jonathan Wilson, the editor of uh, The Blizzard, uh, a contributor to many, many a wonderful publication. Obviously wrote uh, uh, Brian Clough's biography recently and uh, Inverting the Pyramid. I'm sure you're all aware of his work. Next to him, David Conn, uh, author of uh, Bigger Than God, Manchester. Richer, Richer Than God, sorry. Uh, in my head, they're, they're, they're bigger as well, despite <laughs> being God. a Christian. Yeah. Um, Manchester City, modern football and growing up and a contributor to The Guardian. And Andy Brassel, BT Sports, Andy Brassel, uh, contributor to The Guardian uh, as well, ESPN, and a lot of others. And the only man I've ever um, slept in the same bed with in Lisbon. Yeah, told you I'd get that in. Uh, it's not something I said that evening. Um, <laughs> now, uh, let, let us begin, gentlemen. Oh, before we do, let me, let me tell you that uh, we're gonna, I'm going to be asking the chaps a few questions myself. But do have your questions ready as well. Often at the start, people can be a little bit quiet. And then by the end of the evening, there's a, there's a forest of hands. So get straight in there. Again, not something I said that evening. Uh, so, uh, favourite transfer story, while the window is, is just about still open, it's, it's shutting very, very soon. Uh, but let's have a favourite transfer story from you, Jonathan. I think, just in terms of sort of the Machiavellian way things worked, I think Romania in the 80s, it's, it's very hard to beat. So, I mean, there's a, there's a few, few stories I, I, I could have gone for. I mean, for instance, Stefan Jovan, just before he moved to, to Stauer, uh, Dinamo, Stauer the team of the army, Dinamo the team of the, the Securitate. Mm. And, and although they were both powerful in their own way, they were, they were constantly squabbling with each other. And so Dinamo tried to halt his transfer by, by blackmailing him over this, this woman he'd left pregnant two, two years earlier. But I think my, my favourite one, just for the simplicity of it, um, there's a defender called Adrian Bumbescu who went on to play in the, the great Stauer side that, that won the European Cup in 86. And his move from Altaconicesti was delayed for over a year because every time Stauer came to visit, they sent him to visit his family in Cryova. <laughs> and eventually he said, hang on, I, I saw them like two weeks ago, what's going on? And they went, yeah, Stauer here. So Adam Bombescu <laughs> to Stauer in, yeah, I think, 1983. 1983. Uh, we're all very familiar with that one, no doubt. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Don't worry, the answers will get uh, easier. <laughs> um, David, what about yourself? Um, That's it, bring well, the mic I mean, in. I mean, the, uh, the, fa the favourite transfer story that I've ever uh, worked on was um, uh, a famously successful uh, transfer signing by Sir Alex Ferguson of uh, that great Portuguese prospect, Bebe, uh, which, which cost him only 9 million euros. 
Uh, and I, I think when they first presented it, it was, I think, I think there was talk of the new Ronaldo. I, th I think there was talk of that. And then it took like a minute to look into it and he'd played, it, I mean, basically he'd been, he was homeless, wasn't he? And then he played one season, he played in the Homeless World Cup. Then he played one season in the Portuguese third division, which when you actually saw pictures of where he was playing, it was like, uh, basically sort of like converted tennis courts type, that sort of level of, you know, sort of dusty clay pitches. And then one first division club thought, we'll give him a try. And he played two friendlies, I think, for this first division club. And United paid nine million euros for him. His agent started complaining very loudly, and uh, you could get to speak to his agent. Actually, got you know really quite on quite good terms, quite friendly with his agent, who wanted the story told. And what happened was that um, George Mendes, the super agent in mm. Portugal, had come in and said, "I'll get you a move to Manchester United," but. For some strange reason, Bebe sacked his agent and went with George Mendes. And at the same time as George Mendes became his agent, he also bought 30% of him, of the player, of his economic rights as well. So Manchester United, so he'd been his agent for about a week, and Manchester United paid nine million euros, and George Mendes got 40% of that, 30% of the economic rights, and 10% agent's fee, which meant he got 3.6 million euros from United for the sale of Bebe, who I think played, he played in that FA Cup tie, didn't he, against Crawley Town, which was televised. And basically all the Crawley Town players were better than Bebe. <laughs> <laughs> and George Mendes made 3.6 million euros uh, from that deal, and you have never had... An, and the answer from United was, it was our Portuguese scouts that spotted him, and we had to move fast. His debut for United's reserves... Um, just by chance, Richard Jolly wrote a piece of Blizzard on this. Went to see him, and he said, literally before kickoff, they were showing him where to stand for corners. It was it was like Sylvester Stallone and escape to victory. It was it was that bad. But so, sorry for one last thing about Bebe, which which you know, I still hope that one day we'll get the truth about Bebe and what that transfer, you know, what what really happened over that transfer. But. When they were comparing him to Ronaldo, like Cristiano Ronaldo was a football prodigy. Cristiano Ronaldo had been in Sporting Lisbon's academy since he was like one and was known all around European football as, you know, a tremendously gifted and skillful player. Mm. Bebe had played two friendlies for a Portuguese first division club, had never been in an academy, had no reputation. And Manchester United paid nine million euros for him and presented him as the new Ronaldo. That's the scouts for you. <laughs> to be fair, he was bloody brilliant in those two friendlies for Guimarães. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a different story. What about you, Andy? Uh, transfer my story? one's like a, a more modern one from uh, this season. I, you know, I'm like everyone else. I just like a bit of straightforward chicanery. And uh, I think the best one this summer uh, was Abdul Majid Waris, who was coming from Trabs on Sport, uh, to sign for Wren. They've been looking for a striker uh, all summer, so they agreed the deal. Uh, they got him to fly over um, to Paris, where they sent a delegation to pick him up. They see him come off the plane, walk through arrivals. They say, welcome, Abdul. And he walks straight past them to a delegation from Lorient. He gets into their car, and they're stood there thinking, what happened there? <laughs> Counter offer made while he was on the plane, and he didn't even say sorry. My goodness. Offer made on the plane? Yeah. Well, while he was on the plane, on the plane. Yeah. Oh, right, right, yeah. And they say you can't have your mobiles turned on. <laughs> um, 
Well, chaps, what, what struck you about this particular transfer window? There's been an awful lot of money sloshing around. There's been some uh, ridiculous transfer sagas all throughout the summer uh, and so on and so forth. Jonathan, what, what, what struck you? I, I think the, the, the most striking thing is the, the flexing of the muscle of the, of the Premier League's middle class. That suddenly the likes of Swansea and Stoke have both the financial resources and the credibility to, to sign you know, major players, players who wouldn't have given them a second thought. I, mean, I think Andre Ayew going to Swansea is an extraordinary deal. Is that another deal? Is that your agent? <laughs> <laughs> it's not closed yet. <laughs> Sorry, John. Uh, yeah, for, 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 I mean, I, I know Andre Ayew's second name is Morgan, which is weird. Yeah. But despite that, I'm pretty sure he didn't, didn't kind of grow up in France thinking, you know what, I really want to play for Swansea. And yet, you know, with, with presumably <laughs> several other clubs in France and the rest of Europe interested in signing him, mean, you know, he's, he's a, what, 25 proven players, played well for Ghana for years, and yet he goes to Swansea. That, that, that I think, shows the clout that the, the Premier League's middle class has. And that obviously is to do with the, the new TV deal. And, and then you sort of look at, well, where's the money going from this TV deal? And it, I think it's over 200 million quid now has gone from the Premier League into the Bundesliga this season. So... Yeah, this is a new dynamic, the, the, the extraordinary wealth of the Premier League uh, and the way that sort of drifted down into, into Germany, really. Mm. David? Boringly, that's exactly what struck me as well. Uh, <laughs> and I've just been writing about it. And um, it's what's also struck a lot of people in football as well. And um, I was in, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying this to uh, name drop and be flash, but I was in Monaco last week at the Champions League draw working. And, um, it is a shithole, isn't it? It's, yeah, I mean, honest, honestly, it is not that great a gig. It really isn't, and it is a bit of a shithole. And also, you don't even buy a coffee there because it's so expensive. Because you know, it's, it's basically like a strip of a strip of not very attractive land that's basically uh, you know built to cater for people who don't want to pay their tax in their home countries and have got yachts moored in the marina, right? And it's so narrow. So narrow that, and it's steep that if you walk up four flights of steps, you're over the border in France and you can eat quite cheaply and have a nice time and there's lots of normal people there and that's where I had lunch and dinner was in, was in France. So anyway, there, that was a concern that people were raising from other countries is the financial might of the, of the Premier League now is, is basically imbalancing European football even more than it, than it did before. And... I think that because the new television deal was announced in February and it's £5.136 billion just for the domestic TV rights, and now all this money's being spent, people think that they're spending the new TV deal, but we're not in the new TV deal yet. That starts next season. This is still the last year of the current TV deal, which is £5.5 billion altogether. And that money in itself, okay, there might be some money being spent in expectation of, of next year's TV deal, but basically the money they've got is the current TV deal. And as Jonathan said, it's, I mean, the top clubs, there's five of Premier League clubs in the top ten richest in, your, in the world, in Europe. And uh, there's, I think there's 14, uh, I've just been looking at, at Well, it. there's anyway, five between 21st and 30th in terms of revenue. Yeah, and so, so West Ham, the 21st richest club in the world. That's, and then there's a new TV deal to come and moving to Olympic Stadium to come. Sunderland, for God's sake, at 27th richest. I mean, and, and we, you know, look at that squad. That really looks like the squad of a 27th richest. <laughs> <laughs> when it comes to the big clubs, 
you've still got Real Madrid and Barcelona who take the lion's share of the TV money in Spain. And you've got Paris Saint-Germain, obviously, owned by Qatar. And you've got Bayern Munich, which still has massive commercial income. But apart from those four clubs, really, there's, so those four clubs do compete with mm. Chelsea United. And, and, and they still have, if you like, the best players, don't they? But that's why I agree with Jonathan that the real impact is on the middle ranking and even small clubs that can now sign players way out of their history. Like mm. David Gold just, just tweeted into about the widow has now closed. <laughs> yeah. uh, the widow has now closed, um, David Gold said, and said it's been the most amazing transfer window ever for West Ham. Which it has been. Well, apart from when they signed Tevez and Mascherano. That's another story for later. But, but what about, about yourself, Andy? What, what, what struck you? You were talking about a lot of money going into the, the, the Bundesliga. Yeah, well, and, and the same with the middle class clubs in France as well. It's been a great window for them in a, in a totally reverse way to what it has for um, English clubs. And, you know, I, I think. Uh, they're further down the line. I think the Bundesliga clubs are still a little bit in denial. They're, oh, no, what does this mean for our, our future if all the, all the talent goes away? But I think the French clubs are a little bit further away. You had um, the co-president of Saint-Étienne, uh, Roland Romier, saying earlier in the season, like, English clubs are going to be playing a different sport from us in a year's time. Um, but you know what? I think now they've got to that point where they've set ridiculous fees, like, you know, say, um, when there was English interest in Jordan Veritou. And non, uh, their president, Valdemar Kita, said, well, I'll tell you what, if you want him, you're going to have to pay 15 million euros, thinking that's a prohibitively high price. And Villa turned around and said, yeah, OK. <laughs> uh, and only 15 yeah. million euros. And, you know, that there was, I think the, the thing that describes it best, how the French are feeling about it in the, in the moment in terms of filling their boots, and of course that brings us on to the whole mm. Martial deal that uh, has come out over the last day or so, mm. is um, on the opening day of the second division in France, which was the week before uh, Ligue 1 started, um, there was a little vine of a, of a guy um, uh, scoring from the halfway line, and a French journalist <laughs> tweeted it and said... Uh, for God's sake, don't retweet this because the English will pay 20 million for him on Monday. <laughs> and and, and that, that says it all. They're just filling their boots. And you, know, you know what? I think the idea that English clubs are going to exist in this financial bubble forever, it's, it's just nonsense. Because ultimately, all this money is going to drip through to clubs who are going to be able to completely rebuild. If you look at uh, what Sevilla did on the back of, we're going back a couple of years before we even get into this big deal and, you know, whether it's coming or not, it's kind of like, um, the, you know, the new NBA TV deal, which starts in another year. Clubs are already, uh, franchises are already starting to spend because they're, they're thinking, well, if we speculate a bit now, it may look like pushing the boat out, but it might look like it's cheap in a year's time when the money really has kicked in. And I, I just think they're sort of, having a bit of a look now, they're, they're, they're putting it out there and they're, they're, they're thinking, you know, this, this is going to save us money. But in fact, you look at the clubs that are able to rebuild with that money. If we go back a couple of years to Sevilla, you know, they've made bad financial choices. Mm. Um, they're in hock to a lot of third-party uh, owners who, who, who had their hooks in a, a lot of their players. But then they sold um, Alvaro Negredo here for far more than they thought was possible. They had an asking price of about 20 million and they ended up selling him for more than that. They sold Jesus Navas and Monchi, their very good sporting director, managed to build a new team through that. Mm. Since then, uh, they've won the Europa League twice, they've got back into the Champions mm. League um, and, and stuff like that. And, you know, you look at the drip down, like with the Martial deal, for example. Now, Leon, who are a Champions League, back in the Champions League, and, you know, if you look at where they're at at the moment and where United are at at the mm. moment, you know, they could be rivals in this season's Champions League. There's no doubt about it. They're going to get 
not up to 19 million euros for a player that they sold two years ago. Sure. And how does that not have an effect on the bigger picture? Well, Jonathan, you were saying um, on, on the way up here that, that clubs, they're already spending the money on these deals, well, as Andy uh, talked uh, about. And, I and mean, perhaps, I think so, yeah, some are beginning to speculate with next year's money. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. Some, some clubs are thinking, hang on a minute, let's make sure the money is in one's well, account uh, before uh, you start uh, yeah, spending, I mean, just like that, we all do before the end of the month. I mean, I think that's certainly the Short's policy, is that he, he's a little bit concerned about... You know, is the future really as rosy as it appears? And I, I, do, I do slightly worry. I mean, I'm not sure this is a, a short-term concern, but maybe in three or four years, um, you know, there's this sort of assumption that football is immune from global economic uh, trends. And, and so far, English football certainly has been. You know, the, the, the crash of 2007-8 doesn't really seem to have affected English football. But you know, is that always going to be the case? And I'm not sure you can be quite that confident and, uh, you know, if you, if you look at what's happened in, in China in the last fortnight, with you know, 20% being wiped off share prices there, which you know, caused the, the 10% fall in European stock markets, which, okay, we had a bounce back. But the recovery after 2007-8 was predicated on growth in China, uh, an economy that was growing incredibly quickly, I mean, over 10% a year. Well, if that's slowed down, if that's actually stopped, if it's even going backwards, and, you know, the figures aren't entirely reliable, but it's clearly not as rosy picture as it was six, seven years ago. If we have another crash, where does the growth come from? It's not coming from China. And does that then impinge on football as well as everything else? Mm. And you've got to think it, maybe... Isn't, isn't maybe it great what's happened to football? You know, like, uh, we've been here five minutes. Yeah, let's talk about, about how the Chinese stock market <laughs> crashed might affect uh, yeah. you know, English football. I mean, said, long, to be perfectly honest <laughs> with you. Having said that, you know, there's... Um, in terms of TV revenues, which are obviously a, you know, a, a very major part of revenues for football clubs, that, that, the, the, the prognosis of that looks incredibly uh, healthy because you've got Sky and BT who are chucking huge amounts of money at it. I mean, Sky spending so much to head off the, the challenge of BT that they lose the Champions League, they nearly lose La Liga, that they've lost some, some cricket. And, uh, you know, this Discovery have now bought Eurosport and presumably that's with an eye to, to buying European football rights. So that suggests that the competition for those rights is going to get even more intense in the next five, ten years. So from that point of view, it looks you know, incredibly good, incredibly good if you, if you see money as good. Um, but I think yeah, China should be... Just make one point about that, which I think it's really important now that the television money is such a uh, you know, big part of, um, of, of football's... You know, football's survival football's means and such a big part of our conversation and it's governing uh, all these player moves and so on it's the base of the economy it is a consumer business though it's the money is not coming from sky and from bt it is coming from the subscribers uh, sky and bt are only paying that money because they can still make a massive profit okay bt might even treat it as a bit of a lost leader but i presume that they've still got a model where they're going to make a big profit because they're buying football up exclusively, and football has always been, right from the beginning of the Premier League in 1992, the one piece of programming that people are so addicted to and in love with that they're prepared to pay a subscription for it. And so, yeah, Barney Ronay of The Guardian wrote a really good piece at the weekend where he said, why are the, when, they, when they strike a TV deal, why is there always backslapping between men in suits and everybody congratulating themselves? Whereas basically what it means is, 
we're going to keep all the football live exclusively on pay TV. There's never been, you know, that Sky advert at the moment, 23 years together, there's never been one single live league, Premier League game on the BBC or ITV for 23 years. And the more money that they pay, uh, that they pay to the clubs, the more the subscriptions have always gone up. So it is a consumer business, which is why I think that as long as people are basically in work here and addicted to football, they know that they've got a licence to print money and that's why I think it's immune to economic yeah. shocks. That, absolutely. Um, let's open it to the, the floor. We, we will be talking about other stuff than uh, just the financial side of the game. Don't be too put off. Any questions immediately? Uh, nobody at the moment. Oh, yes, sir. One over there. Uh, we're we're going to have microphones coming over so we can all hear your uh, manly tones. I'm basing that on your beard. <laughs> yes, sir, far away. That be the first question. <laughs> oh, hi. Um, yep. Yeah, while you're talking about the, the football league deals in England, I was just curious as to whether you thought um, that might cause like a, a redistribution of wealth in Spain and Germany and places like that, and whether the fact that all the money goes to the big clubs there has any impact on their negotiation and their ability to drive up bigger deals, and whether that will always leave them behind Britain. So, so football deals in this country will affect other countries? No, sorry. So, so in England, we have negotiated a huge you know, TV deal. Yeah. And I'm just curious about whether the, in Germany and Spain, a lot of the money seems to be held within the big clubs there. And whether the fact that it's not distributed does, means that they're in a weaker bargaining position and whether we see any change to that. Okay. Well, it, well, it's interesting because the sort of egalitarian model they've got in Germany has always been a spectre threatening the future of, of German football, really, because you have one club there who is much bigger than all the rest. And, you know, of course, Dortmund can challenge for a couple of years. Uh, Hamburg can challenge for a couple of years, although not at the moment. Um, and, but Bayern will always be there. Bayern will always come back to the top, come what may. And for years, like, Bayern have used this as, as blackmail, really, on the rest of German football to say, look, you know, if, if we don't get what we want, maybe we'll have to go off and former European Super League. Now, of course, they've got no takers for that in England at the moment because everyone's very well served in, in keeping the, the status quo. In terms of Spain, everything's really changing at the moment. Um, but that, that was something that held up the English TV deal here as well because uh, uh, the, the deal of La Liga with, uh, with England, of course, uh, because you had four clubs, um, including uh, Barcelona uh, and Real Sociedad, who wouldn't subscribe to the collective bargaining model that was brought in uh, by Spanish law. So it's really interesting to, to see how that's going to change because Javier Tebas, who's the president of the league, he's not a reformer at all. He thinks that big Barcelona and big Real Madrid is good for the brand internationally and it should stay like that. And as we saw with the back and forth over the rights between Sky and BT, because of course BT thought they had it and didn't, um, the people who sell the international rights um, on behalf of La Liga are A, incompetent, and B, sharks. So how that's going to pan out, who yeah. knows, over the next couple of years. Well, what um, is actually happening with the Spanish deal then? So the, into, the mic, David, in, into the mic, David, the mic. Have they brought in a law that... that that they do have to have a more a collective deal. And yeah, they have. Real Madrid aren't going to yeah, take the lion's share. That, that's, well, they have to have a collective deal, but there's still room for staging right. and, and sort of balance depending yeah. on who's that big inside it. And of, of, of course, Real Madrid were in favour of that, you know, because I, I think they know that, you know, as as a league product, you know, it's really difficult to sell something internationally where you've only got two teams 
in the league. I mean, it, it's been called posh Scotland on however many occasions. And I, I, I think, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of people feel that. Um, but Barcelona have not been in favour of that at all. They've, um, I, I suppose it comes down to the, really, I, I suppose, Catalonia's economic history, really. They've always felt they were better off on their own, and, and that counts TV rights too. Hmm. David, something I wanted to ask yourself about was... Um a little bit of FFP chat. We don't have to spend oh. too long on it, don't worry. You know, you obviously, in your book, you talk about the, the riches of Manchester City and all, and, and clubs seem to be spending so much money. We, we've, we've heard about this uh, FFP business coming in. Uh, QPR seemed to get away with an £8 million fine when, when people thought it was going to be in the 50s and 60s of millions. What's going on with it, quite frankly? Has, is it, have they kind of pulled back on what they originally set out to do with FFP, or are they maybe dripping it in, so to speak? No, they haven't, they haven't changed it at all. And I, th- I just think there's a perception that it was meant to do things that it actually wasn't. And it's actually had a really major impact mm. uh, in the way that UEFA wanted it to have. Obviously, QPR, the FFP issue with QPR is the Football League. And... Topically, I was talking to the Football League on the way over, hands-free, and they said, <laughs> they said that um, they're still, I think there might even be court proceedings with QPR. Mm. So the reports that QPR have got away with it, and I don't think are quite right. Also, Leicester, there's, a, there's, a, there's quite an interesting uh, FFP issue there, because Leicester, when they're in the Championship, they obviously, I mean, it looked like they made a massive loss, and uh, the Football League's losses were limited to about... I think it was eight million and above that you, you, you could get fines that steepled up really sharply and then Leicester announced that they'd done a deal for global sponsorship for, no for global marketing of Leicester City uh, with a company called Tree Stella and Tree Stella had paid such a lot of money that it practically put them you know into breaking even and they wouldn't have any fine to pay and Tree Stella turned out to be registered uh, on a Sheffield trading estate um, to a company owned by the son of the former Premier League chairman, Sir Dave Richards, uh, neither of whom have got any track record in international marketing of any clubs whatsoever. Dave Richards Jr. runs this tiny printing company on this trading estate in Sheffield, and Leicester City have said, they've paid us multi-millions of pounds for the exclusive rights to market uh, us worldwide. And um, David Richards Jr. wasn't prepared to discuss it with me in any detail. Uh, Dave Richards Sr. had a company called Three Star Engineering, which went bust in in 2001, and then he he became the first ever paid Premier League chairman on £176,000 for three days' work, uh, annual salary for three days' work. And um, Tree Stella seems like a remarkably close uh, <laughs> a construction of words as yeah. three star, which obviously Sir Dave Richards has a, a sentimental attachment to the name. Anyway, uh, <laughs> anyway, in terms of FFP, just so I, I don't hog, hog the microphone, FFP was brought in not to create equal competition. Uh, it wasn't brought in as a conspiracy by Michel Platini against Manchester City, regardless of what it says in Manchester City fanzines and regardless of sort of like the propaganda which has taken hold in, in some parts uh, not too far from here. It was brought in to stop too many clubs making losses in the greatest financial boom that football's ever, uh, ever had. And the main thing that they were trying to do was stop players' wages inflating. Every time there's a TV deal increase, the players basically got it. 
and it has actually had some great mm. success. Losses have reduced across European football, and then the Premier League, which ranted against it and said it was, you know, Michel Platini's, like a man in the pub sort of thing, ended up bringing in their own version of FFP, which last year instantly transformed the clubs from mostly making losses to mostly making profits. And they're now sitting on big cash reserve. Alice Short was one of the big supporters of it, I think, mm. because now the television deal increased. Although he's still paying the eighth highest wage in the Premier League. Yeah, but the television deal increased, but they can't use, they, they limited how much of that increase can go on players' wages. So in those terms, it's actually been a success. And the wages, the, the fees paid in this transfer window haven't really been blowing out FFP. Like even City, who've seemed to spend a huge amount of money, have spent a huge amount of money. UEFA in Monaco, people I was talking to were saying they're confident that City are within. Uh, break even or within the limits because they're making so much money now where they are in football uh, and, and, and it is opening up the next challenge which is clearly it does create or it does nothing to help competition because it like basically football is very very competitively imbalanced now for me allowing clubs to be taken over by Abu Dhabi Qatar and Russian oligarchs is not a sensible way to create competition in football or sustainable way but it kind of looks like that to people because they say well at least City have managed to get up there at least Paris Saint-Germain have got at least Chelsea have so taking that away has made people think well suddenly we've got no way of evening competition even though for me that wasn't a way of evening competition but I don't think I think it's such a hard challenge because basically the only way to even competition is to make clubs share money more equally and as you were saying in Spain the clubs very rarely want to do that because mm. they're, they're, they're always looking at their own interest. They're always looking at the one who's richer than them, not at everybody else who's and about of, the same And of course, the richer the big clubs get, they kind of threaten the smaller clubs. I mean, when you originally had this chat in Spain about them uh, creating uh, collective bargaining, no one would go for it. You had Sevilla and Valencia trying to uh, lead some sort of breakaway group to, to have collective bargaining. And all the rest of them thought, well, what are we going to do if Real Madrid and Barcelona hop it? And, you know, uh, Real and Barca always mm. use that hold over the smaller clubs to basically make them into turkeys voting for Christmas. Yeah, absolutely. Um, oh, now we've got some, some questions. Yes, the man with uh, the fine leather jacket. Uh, um, feel free to change the subject, by the way. We don't have to talk about yeah, that. Yeah, this might move on to a slightly different topic, but it, yep. it does start here. Um, does the... We all know that when you've got stakeholders in football, whether it's the clubs or associations or, or people, if they're well looked after, then change is more difficult. Um, is the huge financial success of the Premier League the one or the major thing that they've got in their favour which will stop any kind of FA reform and therefore stop any, um, let's say, big improvement in player numbers in the Premiership from England and, the, and therefore the England team? So will their financial success stop FA reform. Jonathan, any particular thoughts? In a word. Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, the FA is essentially powerless. And, you know, the, the FA did a deal with the Premier League. Well, when the Premier League began, the FA basically, it saw its most important, uh, most important thing to it, the most important issue was its ongoing battle with the Football League for control of English football. It recognised a way of getting control away from Football League, but in doing that, they've completely muted themselves. Uh, you know, the FA basically is, is... If Premier League clubs decide to do something, what's the FA going to do? You know, the Premier League clubs have it fantastically good at the minute in terms of making money. They know they've got a great product. Everybody wants to buy it. Everyone wants to watch it. 
what's the ethic going to do? The only way you could do something about that would be to have government legislation. As soon as you do that, FIFA get involved and say you can't have government legislation. And that's you know, it's a very clear FIFA regulation. So, so uh, yes, is the answer. Is the answer. Good. <laughs> Any more questions? Yes. Uh, man there, have we got the microphone? Uh, it's just coming, sir. And far away. Hello. Um, so what, looking at the kind of, going back to the issue of the TV deal issue, um, Do we when have I compare to kind of the size of markets, like in different groups, I'm, I'm looking at like reasons why we went to the pay TV market system that the UK did compared to say the NFL, <coughs> in terms of that's still on national television on like advert driven, I mean, the nature of the business, nature of the sport affects that, mm. but at the same time, do you think it's just the scale of like, the, the smaller levels of the markets that make it impossible to have like a kind of free view, free to air version of the game? Well, but, I, mean, I think the Premier League would never have been set up without Sky, so yeah. those two things just went together. No, no, they could have done a deal with IT, ITV, were going to do a deal with them, weren't they? But, but they've been right they from the start. No, they were going to do ITV were going to do the first deal, and Greg, Greg Dyke was at ITV, and he agreed to back the breakaway and do a deal with them. But so, so an ITV would have been advertising driven and it all could have been. We, we but it could have been, but it, the point is it wasn't. It, right because start, Sky gazumped them with the price that they paid. Yeah, so right from the start, yeah. the, the, the two were together. Yeah. So, and once that's happened, and once Sky have seen how powerful the Premier mm. League is, they're never going to. I mean, that's why they've increased, what, 70% increase <laughs> on this TV deal? So, yeah, I mean, I think the two are just. Yeah. And of course, without, without that deal, we would, wouldn't perhaps know the, the television careers of Keys and Grey, so be thankful. <laughs> <laughs> He had a go at Richard Keyes last year. Well, yeah. Has the man changed? <laughs> <laughs> and that was just because he said Doha was a lovely place to be, wasn't it? Yeah, indeed he did. And a lot more other things. Um, <laughs> uh, any, more, any more questions? Uh, yes, that man right there. Who should replace Seth Blatter? Who should replace Seth? Oh, Keyes and Gray. Um, <laughs> they're already there. Um, <laughs> Andy, who should replace Keys? Uh, not Keys and Gray. And, and then, <laughs> I don't know. Who, take your pick. You're not uh, obsessed, who, are you? <laughs> who should replace Blatter? Well, you know what? For the moment, I, I don't really think that's the issue. I don't think it makes any difference. The idea that um, <laughs> he's the mastermind behind it all. Well, yeah, no, not necessarily. The, the, the question is, who no, no, no. But it's. I, I think it's a relevant point. The, 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 okay. idea, the idea that. Um, Changing the president is really going to change the way FIFA runs. I, I, I don't think it's correct. But that, but that might not be the motive behind the question. Though. No, it might not be. Yeah. But, um, I think it's an angle worth covering. Jeremy Corbyn. I don't know. Uh, Jonathan, who would you fancy? I mean, I, I think people in, in North America, in Western Europe, struggle to understand why Blatter remained so popular for so long. Uh, and I think the reason is essentially what, what came not just before Blatter but before Havalange. So there's still, if you talk to people in African federations, in Asian federations, uh, Central American federations, and they all go, oh, we don't want to go back to the days of Stanley Rouse. Now, Rouse was, was not corrupt, but that's by, by the end, that was pretty much the only good thing you could say about him. I mean, he was a man who insisted that the, the Soviet Union had to play a, a World Cup qualifying playoff in the Estadio Nacional in, in Santiago, which had been used a matter of days beforehand as a uh, torture and detention centre after the Pinochet coup, you know, against a democratically elected Marxist government. So you can see why, I mean, anybody would have problems with that, but the Soviets in particular. Um, Raoult's attitude to, to Africa and Asia was, um, I think, <clears throat> through modernising, it looks racist. Um, and I think there's a huge fear 
uh, outside of Europe that FIFA would go back to being essentially a, a European organisation and that all the development that's happened in, in African and Asian football uh, over the last 40 years would be, it would be halted. Um, now, I think what, what, what that view misses is the fact that things could have been done even better for Africa and Asia, but Blatter did take the World Cup to, to South yeah. Africa, which remains uh, you know, an astonishing achievement and symbolically is, you know, is, a, is a key moment in the development of the African game. So I think, and I, I know Blatter is Swiss, but he, he was always sort of perceived as being anti-European or anti-UEFA. And so for the new president to be somebody from UEFA, I think is potentially dangerous. Um, I think it's very difficult for it to be somebody from UEFA because the, the African Confederation CAF has 54 votes. They vote as a bloc. They're, they're, you know, they're, they're the strongest bloc that um, in, in terms of nobody ever splinters away from that, Hayatu, the Cameroonian president of, of CAF, has, has great power there. So I, I think realistically, uh, if there is to be meaningful reform, if people are really going to reassess what is FIFA about, how do we make it transparent, how do we make it work for everybody, the ideal is, is a non-European. Now, are there realistic candidates? I really struggle to see them. Maybe the, the best candidate would be somebody from outside football, somebody... You know, beyond reproach, somebody um, with with impeccable integrity. So, you know, and Coffee Nan was mooted mm. ages ago, and I don't think that's serious, but that kind of person would probably be the ideal. Otherwise, somebody with great integrity, somebody beyond reproach within football, I'm, I'm thinking Sven and Eriksson. Now you're talking. <laughs> now you're talking. Football will get a lot sexier, certainly. <laughs> uh, David, uh, who would you, uh, would you quite well, like to I mean, say? I, I sort of agree with both uh, both Andy and Jonathan uh, in the sense that I don't actually think that focusing on Blatter has been one of the problems. I think that um, it's got to be a better organisation and one of the reasons why it's been such an awful organisation is because it's he because the figure of president has been so almost like autonomous, so powerful and uh, in fact um, absolutely right what Jonathan says about Sir Stanley Rouse, he's like the quintessential English blazer who was a man completely out of time. You know, like, um, there's profiles of him sitting... This is, like, in 1970 when, uh, you know, Brazil were winning the World Cup with the team with Pelé and Jairzinho and Gerson, you know, that sort of carnival of football in colour from Mexico. And Sir Stanley Rouse was working in the office in Zurich wearing a cardigan with his Labrador... Uh, at his feet in the office and there was a staff that actually sounds quite nice oh yeah it's, re it's really nice but you think how is he running a world organisation he was like the quintessential English blazer for all, and for all the good things that entails you know he'd been an international referee he'd been secretary of the football association for years he was, he was a pioneer of football administration in a lot of ways he rewrote the rules of football in 1938 but he was a man out of time and he was replaced by the Brazilian João Havelange and Havelange was in a way more than blatter uh, involved in that expansion and that was a platform he stood on, the expansion of football beyond Europe and the base that Europe had always had and the domination it had always had. Uh, expanded the number of countries that could play in the World Cup and uh, welcomed in, he's from, obviously he's from Brazil, and, and broadened the game and recognised that the game had gone way beyond its European boundaries. At the same time he helped himself to, him and his son-in-law helped themselves to £27 million in bribes from ISL when they granted the TV rights to them. And they set that culture, which Blatter was his mm. protégé, and Blatter worked up in FIFA under Havelange. He was and secretary, wasn't he? He was the, he like was the secretary Valker, general yeah. of 
FIFA under Joe Havalanche, and he learnt the ropes under Havalanche. He joined Havalanche. He wasn't now under the, the Sir Stanley Rouse mm. culture. And so he learned the culture under Havalanche, which is expand the game, expand it beyond Europe, sell the TV rights and the commercial rights for as much as you can, and... Have a bloody good time. Turn a blind eye. <laughs> turn, a bl- turn a blind eye to what they all get up to as long as they support you. And when you actually put together... When you put together the scale of corruption that has been proven and uncovered, that is no longer allegations amongst FIFA, like just one of them, just even like a tenth of one of them should be enough to sink an organisation, to make the, the, the leader resign and, and for complete reform. But we've had... Uh, I, I mean, it is utterly staggering. What Jack Warner... I was reading one, uh, that, that internal CONCACAF report which said, and this is like quite lesser known in, in, in this country because there's been so much. And Jack Warner's the, uh, the Trinidadian former uh, president of CONCACAF, who, which, is, which is Caribbean, North Africa, North and Central America, who was one of the people who was hounded by the English journalist Andrew Jennings when he was you know, exposing some of the early corruption at FIFA. And it is, it's that lovely clip for Panorama or someone where he's chasing him through the airport. And Jack Warner says, I would not spit on you. So Andrew Jennings says, Andrew Jennings loves the, the doorstep on camera. He absolutely thrives on it. Like, they're always talking about mm. Jack, Andrew Jennings like, oh, like when, when the England World Cup bid was trying to stop the BBC exposing corruption because as they wrote to all the FIFA executive committee, as members of the football family, mm. we feel solidarity with you. We disown the BBC's efforts. And they were always saying to us, oh, we're in Zurich, and Andrew Jennings was jumping out of hedges again. <laughs> but anyway, so yeah, a, the first, first time I ever met Jennings was in Bamako in um, 2002, uh, so just before the, the Couple of Nations and in Mali. there was Mali. no hedges for him to jump out No, but, but there were stone pillars. <laughs> <laughs> and so the, 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 um, the CAF Congress is, is going on, and I'm sort of, yeah, I'd never covered a, a Couple of Nations before, I didn't really know what was going on, I was sort of wandering around and see this sort of, this man who looks a bit like, um, a bit like John Pertwee hiding behind a, a pillar. <laughs> so, uh, he, he looks pretty English to me. I'm going to speak to him. <laughs> and I went over and sort of introduced myself. And he, shh, pulls me down. And then, you know, literally in 30 seconds, he's jumping out. Did you take a bribe? Have you taken a bribe? Yeah. And Did I thought, you? God, is that, is that actually what journalism is? is kind of <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Turns out it is for him, but yeah. not really anybody else. That's it, because, you know, uh, with journalism, you know, you get a lot of your information stories by actually being nice to people, <laughs> talking to them, gaining their confidence. But Andrew Jennings... Uh, you know, did tend to jump out my edges with the microphone anyway. So he was, he was chasing Jack Warner through this airport, and um, and Jack Warner said, "I would not spit on you." He said, "I would not spit on you." So, so Andrew Jennings said, "Oh really? Oh really? Why? Why, Mr. Warner? Why would you not spit on me?" He said, "I would not dignify you with my spit." So, Jack <laughs> yeah. so that that that's Jack Warner, which I think is like the quintessential Jack Warner, you know, yeah. uh, archetypal. I, I, I loved what what uh, Jennings said about Jack Warner when they asked him about it, and he went, "He's." He's uncultured, isn't he? <laughs> I, thought was, I thought that was absolutely wonderful. We're going to have to wrap up the first half, though. Can I just finish, okay. on, yeah, ju- please ju- just finish on the scale of corruption at FIFA, so yeah. ju- just while we're on it? So, besides Jack Warner being someone who would say to somebody, I would not dignify you with my spit, uh, he had pretty much a similar attitude to the money in, in FIFA. And mm. I, Just two, two bits, which I'll try and run through really quickly. So, you know, like, the, the massive 161-page indictment from, from the US authorities that is, uh, you know, is, is <coughs> charging 14 people, including nine FIFA officials, with that massive 
it, it says you are a racketeering influenced corrupt organization which is basically uh, what they call the mafia and that's what set blatter's most offended by you know did you hear what they called us that's you know he's more offended by them calling him that than about the corruption that the people that he worked with for all those years have been accused of anyway within that is the one where jack warner is accused of taking 10 million dollars as a bribe from south africa to vote for South Africa for the 2010 World Cup, which sort of slightly undermines the wonder of it being held in Africa for the first time, doesn't it? Well, it's extraordinarily needed a bribe, given that pretty much, there, was, there was pretty much no other viable candidate. I know Morocco kind of got just about within touching distance, but that was a, you know, it was, it was always going to be in South Africa. So, yeah, so, so if people were taking 10 million dollar mm. bribes for something that was a fit accompli, then... Yeah, so, so basically, South Africa have denied that it was a bribe, and they've said that and so have FIFA, and they've said it was $10 million for the Africa Diaspora Legacy Programme that happened to be run by Jack Warner, who was paid a very round figure of $10 million. That's exactly how much the Legacy Programme has got, $10 million. And I think we can all agree it's done great work since, hasn't it? Money well spent. And also for the Africa Legacy Programme, it would just be where Jack Warner is, isn't it? That's the, uh, you know, that's where the African diaspora is, is basically in Jack Warner's backyard, right? And, and so they've said, you can't prove it. And if you look at, there's a FIFA report which actually says $10 million accounted for, paid for the African Legacy Diaspora Programme. But where Jack Warner's slightly, uh, you know, in trouble is that Chuck Blazer, his mate, who mm. worked for him all those years, has told the American authorities Jack Warner told me it was a bribe from South Africa. So that's the $10 million, and we're waiting to see whether he gets extradited and what happens to him. Mm. And then I was reading, there was an internal CONCACAF report into the running of CONCACAF by Jack Warner and Chuck Blazer. Okay. And it found that Jack Warner had defrauded CONCACAF and FIFA because when FIFA were giving the money to build a centre of excellence in Trinidad, Jack Warner was continually telling them that this was a wonderful asset that was going to be a wonderful asset for CONCACAF and never told them once that he owned the land, right? So Jack Warner was getting them to pay money to him instead of to CONCACAF. And the amount of money that he was accused of defrauding FIFA by that was paid to the Centre of Excellence was $26 million. That's, that's not just, even half of Anthony Martial. Yeah, that's just, yeah. That, that's just one of his little schemes, mm. just one of them. It's so. uh, almost applaudable. Uh, it's, it's, it's that bad. Uh, we're going to finish the first half there. We're going to take a 10-minute break. But um, as you can see, you know, uh, we're not just going to talk about finances and, and FIFA and all the rest of it. We can do if that's what you, you want to ask. But get, um, Let's do jokes. Come on. All that kind of stuff. <laughs> the chaps have got ridiculous stories from, from football. Jonathan and the African Cup of Nations. Goodness knows what he got up to there, etc. and so on. Nothing terrible. Don't worry. Um, uh, so we'll see you in about 10 minutes. Thank you very much. Right then, everybody, uh, this is the second half, just like we promised. Um, we're going to begin by asking um, about favourite football diva moments. This is in light of Jermaine Defoe, uh, obviously advertising for a PA, which is, is quite wonderful, really. Uh, in a world of player liaisons, we've heard many stories uh, involving them and having to change light bulbs, that kind of thing. Uh, players often live in a bubble behind the, the velvet curtain of the, or the velvet rope of the Premier League. So, gentlemen, favourite kind of football diva moments, if you like, Jonathan. Uh, you're talking about Jermaine Defoe. Kind of, 
I don't quite understand how his PA is getting paid five grand a year less than uh, John Joe Shelby's chef. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> See, it seems to me that the chef gets the better deal there. Yeah. Um, what was it like hat to liaise with Gardner? Was that one of the duties? Yeah. You had to so liaise with the Gardner. I mean, again, we refer to, to, to Barney Rono, but the idea is he's had to put two stages between himself and nature. <laughs> uh, um, <laughs> but I, mean, I guess it's not really a, a devious thing, but in terms of football liaison officers, there's... Um, or a ridiculous sort of story with the football. Yeah, no, it, it's, uh, there's a football liaison officer who um, worked at Blackburn for a long time, who, who was sort of quite well known, who's very sort of... Uh, vocal with journalists and he, he was very close surprisingly given the, the backgrounds of the two people but he became very close to Michel Salgado and quite regularly Michel Salgado would be in the pub and uh, he'd have nobody to play pool against so he'd ring him up and say Matt can you come down and uh, give us a game of pool <laughs> so yeah football liaison officer whose job was to keep Michel Salgado entertained by playing pool against him that's brilliant a far cry from uh, Madrid no doubt for Michelle, um, what about you, David? Um, I must admit that not only do I not really spend that much time with footballers in their diva moments, but I've also always been a bit of a defender of footballers and think that they get a bad press and that generally the ones that I've met have been actually pretty intelligent, decent, nice people who've worked Ooh. hard. They're just the ones, I, they're just the ones I've met. But, um, but um, in terms of like how much money they've got on the costed world they live in, just a little, perhaps a bit of an insight for you with a bit of local geography. So when I was writing a piece about City once, which actually, you know, I've had quite a lot of access to City under the, the Abu Dhabi regime, and um, they, were, they were wanting to show me just how they'd modernised everything and all the money was, has been spent wisely, and, and uh, they were showing me like the new player welfare department because they were saying that Previously, players just used to arrive and no one gave a toss, basically, and, you know, they could just go wherever and they can't find a doctor, they can't find a house, obviously. And they said, you know, we, we help them look for a house and you'll see that we've got a whole department dedicated to finding a house. Now, I grew up in Manchester. I, grew up, I was born in Salford. I grew up in North Manchester, Presswich, and um, I was quite interested in, like, the local advice that they were giving to the players about where to live. So I went to the player welfare estate agency style um, you know service that Manchester City put on and um, North Manchester does not exist <laughs> to the footballers of Manchester and the only areas on this list were Alderley Edge Hale, Wilmslow and for urban I think it said, it honestly said for the edgy urban experience Didsbury <laughs> <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Andy. Well, mm. well it's, it's interesting uh, hearing uh, both the lads talk about um, uh, player liaison officers and how much that's come on, really. I mean, I remember just a couple of years ago, not all clubs are down with that already, just a couple of years ago, I was, I was on um, a holiday with my family in southern Spain during the J January transfer window, and um, Sevilla had just signed uh, a Senegalese striker called Baba, um, and um, I went to his presentation in the afternoon, seeing as I was, I was, I was there, um, asked a couple of questions. You know, it's very hard to completely park work for a couple of yeah, weeks. Just like Harry Redknapp, always working. Uh, that, that, that's, that's right. And um, anyway, we went to this, there's, there's a really nice uh, tapas restaurant just opposite the Novion where Sevilla play. And um, we sat down and we noticed um, 
on the table next to us uh, was a, a guy, and my wife pointed him out and said, he doesn't seem to um, know what he's doing, really. And he was just stuck with the menu, not really knowing what was going on. It was Baba. He was signed oh. for three million in the afternoon, and then the club obviously pushed him out, let him, left him to it. Mm. He was struggling to fit a SIM card into his phone to obviously ring home. And so I, I said, are you all right there? Do you need a bit of help? And I ended up ordering for him and fixing his phone. Aww, hey. um, but not, not at his behest. He didn't demand it. Yeah. Um, I mean, if, we, if we're talking about diva behaviour, yeah. I think we'll go back because to... Because that, that was quite a, a, a nice story of you helping a fellow man out there. Well, it, it, it didn't do him any good. I mean, he never got in the first team. But, um, okay, but did at he, least but he did could he, ring home and say, I'm not in the first was, team. I, I hate it say. here. <laughs> so um, that, that was okay. But uh, I, I think I'd go back to being with Portugal uh, during the 2014 World World Cup, you think you know where this is going, don't you? You really think you know where this is going. But um, I, I was with the, the, the Portugal team uh, who arrived in Manaus for, uh, in the Amazon for the, the, the second game uh, against the USA. They arrived quite late after the, the, the four hour flight, flight from uh, near Sao Paulo. Um, and um, as the, the team were checking in, there was quite a, a, a fluster in reception because a, an unnamed uh, member of the Portuguese uh, playing staff had demanded uh, 12 white roses uh, to be uh, left in his room, which is bloody hard to find in Manaus at half <laughs> it turns out. So an, anyway, um, junior member of hotel staff goes out, finds 12 white roses while we're all sat there in the bar. Wow. She comes in at about quarter to two. She's very proud of herself, lifting them like the Champions League trophy and drops them <laughs> on the floor. And it was just like in the school canteen when someone drops their tray and everyone just put their drink down, yeah. down turned around and went, <laughs> Well, this poor girl was getting the broom out and uh, presumably Raul Morelis was one very, very disappointed. All <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. Well, it wasn't the one I was thinking, but uh, <laughs> fair enough. Maybe it wasn't really Raul Morelis. Oh, okay. We'll call him, I don't know, Christian Ronald or something like that. Um, uh, have we got any questions from Twitter, Gareth? Is the mic on? That man will turn All right, on. are we working now? That's better. There we go. Uh, so this is from Sean A on Twitter. There is a bloke sat there, by the yeah. way. You're not going <laughs> <laughs> So from Sean A on Twitter, he, he simply says, as a Man United fan, WTF. Yeah. Um, so take that however you like. As a Manchester United fan, what the fuck? Uh, that, that is uh, what that I means. That. Yeah, okay, okay. <laughs> Just in case. Um, Jonathan, what is going on at Manchester United? I have no idea. Um, see, when Van Gaal arrived, I had this... Well, there's a story told of... Um, let, let's name him. Rob Draper from the Mail on Sunday. Mm. This is before Van Gaal got to United. He was at a, a, some, some dinner and Van Gaal was there. So this is before... Yeah, Van Gaal, I, I guess, was... Maybe he was after Bayern, but, you know, he, he, he hadn't been... Uh, I don't know if he was Dutch national manager at the time. Anyway... So Van Hal is, is, is at this dinner, and Rob Draper, yeah, having yeah, idolised the Ajax team of the 90s, as, as many people of our generation did, um, he sees Van Hal, gets very excited, and Rob Draper's with his wife, and goes rushing over to him uh, between courses, and uh, says to his wife, yeah, this is Louis Van Hal, this is the man, this is the man who invented modern football. And then he thinks, oh God, I've gone, I've gone too far there, like, that's just it's really embarrassing. And now Louis van Halsing going, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I kind of agreed with him. I, I, I thought Van Hal, I, I, I still have this sort of faith that Van Hal will somehow pull it around. And uh, journalistically, he's brilliant. I mean, every <laughs> press conference, it, it's like the entire world 
seen through downfall parodies. It's, I mean, it's, after, the, um, after the Newcastle game, when you know, Rooney had that goal, it was you know, very tight off cycle given against him, and Van Hoek clearly disagrees with this. And he's claiming that television shows clearly that it was, it was onside, which it didn't. But, and it, he, he, he sort of ends his, his sort of um, discussion by going, and this, ish, why? <laughs> you must have ish. <laughs> I was listening. Is that, is that, is this sort of silence? Is that the reason ten. why we should have eyes? Yeah, oh, I thought he said eyes. No, no, eyes. Oh, okay, right, right. God gave us eyes so we could see that Wayne Moody was possibly on side. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, and yet, I have to say, I'm increasingly bewildered by what's going on. I, 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 you know, I've written two pieces about it for The Guardian recently about his obsession with process, which I, I, I guess... There's two ways of setting up a team. You either get the, the process right or you get the individuals right. You know, there's the starting point. Ideally, you know, the two come together. But you can sort of say, right, we'll have 10 chances, they'll have 10 chances, but our centre forward's better than theirs, so we'll probably win the game. Yeah, that, that's one way of doing it. Or you can say, we'll set up a, a way of playing so that we're pretty certain we'll have 12 chances and they'll have no more than four. And so that you know, weight of numbers, weight of numbers of chances should should enable us to win the game. And he, he seems obsessed by keeping possession, by denying the opposition chances. So it's a very sort of, it's a cautious proactivity. Yes, they have the ball, which is a proactive approach, but they have it in a way that is risk-free. And there's a very interesting um, line from Siak Svart when he's talking about the, the Ajax of the, of the mid-90s, so the, the team that won the Champions League, that, you know, that great team with, mm. I mean, he's talking about the two <coughs> wingers, about Mark Overmars and Fanidi George. Siak Svart had been a, a winger in, in Michaels' team in, in the early 70s. And he got, Svart got really frustrated with Overmars and Infinity George because every time they had two men between them and the goal, they would check back, play the ball in field, work it to the other wing, see if there's a, uh, you know, an opportunity to attack there. They'd never take on the first man because if you've got two men between you and the goal, you take on the first man, maybe the ball rolls away from you a bit, the second man takes it off you. And I think you can see exactly that with United at the minute, that when they're playing against teams who, who aren't Club Bruges, um, <laughs> teams who, who are actually good at defending, they, they keep on finding... You know, more than one man between them and the goal, and so they check back. and And Yanisai, you can see it repeatedly. Now, I think that Newcastle game was really obvious. He, he'd get the ball, he'd have 10 or 15 yards in front of him, he'd start to accelerate, and you could almost see the thought hit him Oh, I, I can't beat this first man because somebody behind him I might lose it, and then Van Hart's going to shout at me. And you know, that's like being in a downfall party, it's terrible. <laughs> so, so he hesitates and he checks back. Um, and I think it's become very uh, inhibitive. Now, it may be that suddenly something clicks and all these processes are internalised. I think you saw that happen with Bayern Munich, the, the, the famous game when they beat Roma 4-1 in, uh, in November, I think it was, early November of this first mm. season. And after that, suddenly they start playing great football because the players adapt and accept that. And, and, and yeah, they're not constantly thinking, what, what's the instruction? The instructions are, are internalised. And that clearly hasn't happened yet. And we're talking 50 games and they haven't internalised that. Mm. And maybe that's to do with transfer policy and the, the, the turnover of players. They haven't had time. But then you look at the transfer policy and you think, what on earth is going on with the forwards? That how have they not... You know, a, Rooney appears to be the first choice centre-forward, okay, Martial, but he's 19, uh, unproven. He's only scored, I think, 12 goals in his life. I mean... <laughs> um, it's more than Bebe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> only Joss, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is he Bebe in disguise? Um, <laughs> and you think, you know, for what, what Van Hal demands of a number 10, 
Yeah, his ideal number 10 was uh, Jair Littmanen uh, when he was at Ajax. Somebody who incredibly hardworking, very good at winning the ball back. Now, he really is the best English forward in 20 years at winning the ball back. And yet he's not been used to do that. He's been mm. used as, as the front man. So that all seems just really weird. But even if you accept Rooney could go back to being the centre forward he was in uh, was, what, 09 10, wasn't yeah, he? Yeah, 30 so, goals. Yeah, yeah. Which I don't think he can because I think he's lost that explosiveness. Even if you accept he can do that, what if he gets injured? There's nothing there. So I, I think that what's happened in the last 48 hours with the United's transfer policy has been just bizarre. I just. Mm. I just David, I mean, David, yeah. what do you think? Do you think Van Al's cracking up? What, what you, you expect me to follow that with what? references to uh, <laughs> tactics and uh, you know people from the, obviously the mid 90s? And but what, what it's making me a couple of things uh, like Pedro. The reports were that he was going to go to United, and then he phoned his mates at United, and they said, "Don't come here because mm-hmm. Van Gaal's you know, a lunatic, and it's miserable, and it's awful, and uh, you, you don't want to be here," which uh, isn't very clever. Um, I do wonder sometimes if people have their time, not just football managers, just yeah. generally, like Greg Dyke for me is an example, <laughs> where, where maybe in his day, before he didn't make the big money, maybe he was dynamic and you know, he could actually grasp a tiny bit of detail before he made his mind up about an issue, but now, uh, you know, but now he's, living, he's living on his <laughs> reputation and he just, he just says things. Um, and uh, you know, he, he's, I personally think he's been absolutely awful for the FA and I've come across it a lot where um, you know you get sort of senior people if I can put it that way and you're wondering how they're still in that position and I remember somebody saying to me uh, you know you learn your lessons wherever you can get them and this was about the chairman of Chesterfield who'd sold Chesterfield to uh, Darren Brown who was presented as a young entrepreneur uh, who was going to take Chesterfield up you know through the divisions or at least up from the fourth division and he turned out to be um, He'd almost never had a job. Uh, he'd been in the Sun newspaper once for shooting his teacher. And, um, and it turned out that he'd gone into the club and nicked the money uh, to pay this chairman for the club. And he ended up going to prison uh, for four years, and that's what precipitated Chelsea, Chesterfield's crisis. And that was one of the first crisis clubs I ever wrote about. And I remember saying to someone, about that chairman, you know, like... Why is everyone in this town sort of in fear of this guy? And he said to me, in his time, he was really sharp, really smart, really dynamic. Well, just wondering if this Bank was something we, we were saying on, on the trend the way up. Yeah, we were yeah. saying that people like Ferguson, people like Lobanovsky are very, mm. very rare. The <coughs> yes. managers seem to have sort of decade long mm. cycles in which they can be effective. Uh, and is Mourinho next? But do you think Wenger's one of them where he's had his time? Yeah, well, yeah. Well, well yeah, Wenger, that's a very interesting... Yeah. What, about, what about Mourinho then, Andy? I mean, Chelsea are not having the best of times either. No, they're, they're not. And you, you can't jump the gun just because they've, they've had a poor start. But on the other hand, the thing that would worry me the most is uh, the fact that he was tactically outwitted by Laurent Blanc in the PSG game last season. Laurent Blanc is, you know, let's make no bones about it, the guy's a tactical dunce. He's just got an <laughs> incredible set of players. Yeah. Um, but all they had to do, really, is dig in against a team that had a, a player more than them. And, you know, they absolutely deserve to, to, to win that tie. I, I think the, the real question is not what Mourinho does in the Premier League this season, but what he does in the Champions League. Mm. You know, he's stalled a number of times in the latter stages. Who knows, maybe Barcelona just drove him mad. That great Pep Guardiola Barcelona side simply drove him over the edge. Um, but I, I do wonder really whether he, he has got the answers anymore. I think he's probably got one more big job in him, big club job in him, before he uh, goes to Portugal, because he will do that um, before he packs in. 
Um, but, you know, we both wonder where that could be, maybe even Atletico Madrid, because there's That'd be great, wouldn't it? They would, and there's absolutely no obligation to play good football there as well, which is really important as well, um, <laughs> if, if you're looking at it from the Mourinho perspective. Yeah. But, you know, he's signed this contract with the idea that, you know, he's going to force himself into longevity. Mm. But it's, it's all falling to... To, to bits already, really. Mm. But it, it's interesting, that, uh, going back to Van Hal, mm. it's just his incredible capacity to, to fall out with people and people that he's close with, like uh, Robin Van Persie, like Victor Valdez. And I think when you talk about, you know, that it's not just about him aging, it's about the game moving on as well. Mm. And when you look at Martial, and in many ways, he's a very, very typical Van Hal signing because, you know, the, the, the system is king, it's not the players. And, you know, he, he always says that he's really egalitarian, you know, whether a player, what did he say last season, whether he costs five, 50 million or, or 5,000, it doesn't matter to me. It does matter. If you cost a lot of money, you have to work a hell of a lot harder under Van Hal to, to prove yourself. There's no doubt about that. But I think Martial, forget the price tag, he's a typical Van Hal signing because he's incredibly talented and he's young, so he can be moulded. But you know, he's a modern footballer, so he's, he's, he's not like that. He's not like a normal 19-year-old. He's not a 19-year-old who's come out of the academy. He was the most expensive 17-year-old in French history. Now he's the most expensive player in French history. So will Van Gaal be able to mould him like he's been able, with it, without any uh, chat back, as, it, as he's been able to mould young players in the past? And I think it's, it's doubtful. You mentioned Ferguson in passing, and to me, what happened to Moyes and what's happening to Van Gaal in, in, in one way, uh, take all your points about Van Gaal himself in the detail and, and Moyes' limitations as well, but it just offsets to me what a managerial talent, mm. what a managerial oh, yeah, genius yeah. Ferguson was. And I always think about, was it in his final season when they played Real Madrid at home and Nani got sent yeah. off? And he, right. he didn't go in the press conference afterwards, yeah. he was so distraught. Nani got sent off and Mourinho made the quick substitution and Real Madrid beat them, beat them in that game. But before that, United were, I think it was one all, but United, did United go one in like anyway? Yeah. United yeah. were attacking them, United were going at them, United were absolutely, you know, that they were slaughtering them, and they, and they had in the team Johnny Evans, cleverly, they had Danny Welbeck, they had four, five, six... Bebe. <laughs> they didn't actually have the new Ronaldo, but they had four or five, if you include gigs, if you include the senior players, they had some like four or five or six players that had come through United's youth team. And once Ferguson had gone, Tom Cleverley started to look like he couldn't play. Tom mm. Cleverley was excelling in that game against mm. Real Madrid. And, and, and didn't they, what did they win the league by in that, in that last season? 12 points uh, in City. Like that, yeah. uh, and if you looked at that team, it was, uh, it was, it was ordinary. Mm -hmm. And he won the Premier League over City with all the multi-million billion that they'd spent by then, uh, by something like 12 points. And once he went you could see that it was the sheer force of his personality. And, and, and he gave confidence to, to those players who were otherwise quite ordinary. And I do think it's saddening, because uh, I've written this trans piece today about the transfer window, just trying to sum it up, and I was just looking at the list of players in and players out. And, OK, United, they've signed Martial, they've signed, um, you know, they've, they've signed quite a few random players, basically, that they could get. Um, but if you look at the players out, Evans has gone this time, hasn't he? Um, uh, basically, the tradition that United had always prided themselves on and that Ferguson really prided himself on of having homegrown players in the, in the team just seems to have been completely abandoned. Mm -hmm. And that's something that should have lasted long, yeah. long after Van Gaal's gone. And we saw that when they sold Welbeck, of 
course, yeah. as well. Um, any questions from the floor? Yes, the man. Uh, Sorry, there. Tyler Blackett. He's another one that's gone. Gone yeah. to Celtic on loan. That's right, yeah. There's the hand. And here comes the microphone. Far away. Hi, yeah. um, I was just wondering, has the change in the role of the fullback meant that teams can't defend anymore? Has the, the change in the role of the fullback, I'm, I'm does that mean really, that teams can't defend anymore? Is yeah. that the question? I'm thinking like Patrick Van Arnold. <laughs> yeah, probably DeAndre Yedlin. Yeah, Jonathan. Um, I, I mean, partly yes. Uh, if you look at the role of a fullback, I mean, I think it was um, Jack Charlton after '94 World Cup mm. said that the fullback was the the most tactically important position on the pitch, and, and his his rationale for that was if you your most teams in '94 World Cup played four four two. So if you imagine two four four twos up against each other, the two centre backs mark the two centre forwards, the four midfielders cancel. And the, you know, the players have space, so the fullbacks, so they're the ones who can set the tempo of the game. So naturally, they start to advance. And, and as, as the 90s go on, you see fullbacks becoming more and more attacking. I and mean, I'm not saying they weren't attacking fullbacks before that. I think it becomes more and more part of their, you know, the, the, sort of a natural part of their role is to attack. Um, and that, that has carried on even as 442 yielded to 4231 and 433. It's now expected that the, the fullbacks provide the width. Uh, and even if you have wingers in the side, um, you know, the, the, the fullback can help the winger by, by overlapping. So, you know, Danny Alves and Messi being, being maybe the classic case, or, or Ronaldo and, and Contrao to, again, use something we were talking about on the train on the way up. Um, so, yeah, fullbacks have become very attacking. You, you look at heat maps of, of the best sides now, and you would have two defenders, and then the two fullbacks will be in a line with the one or two holding midfielders. So they've become very attacking, but I also think the, the art of, of being a centre-back is, is being lost. Mm. Uh, and I think the price that Mangala or Otamendi demands, um, I think, shows that. that you know, I, I've seen a fair bit of Otamendi playing for Argentina, and you know, he's big, he's solid, he's, he's decent, you know, he, he's, a, he's a good player. But I don't actually think he's particularly different to the sort of player that most top five clubs in England had two or three of 25 years ago. Uh, he's maybe a little bit better on the ball, maybe he reads the game slightly better, but he's not massively different. Uh, and I think a lot of his Odomendi's qualities are the sort of qualities we used to take for granted in the centre-back. And now, uh, as sort of the, the Bielsa model, if you like, has, has, has taken hold of Van Hal model, that you have to play the ball out from the back. I mean, Van Hal always talked to Ajax about how his number four, who was Frank Rijkaard on that side, had to be the playmaker, that the football had changed so that players had the pitch had to do more defending, players at the back had to do more creating. But that ability to build a play from the back, so what Mascherano does for, for Barcelona, um, that, that becomes an essential part of a centre-back's role at a top club. Um, and the, 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 the downside of that is that the defending is, is forgotten about. I think partly also rule changes mean that if you defend as old defenders defended, you get sent off. So... That makes it harder. So yeah, partly the role of the fullbacks, partly the role of the centre-backs changed. Andy? Yeah, I think um, the thing with Otamendi, for example, is you know people are so desperate to anoint the next great centre-half. Um, I've seen a lot of him over his club career, apart from when he was at Atletico Mineiro. He was the best defender in La Liga last season. He was absolutely brilliant. But before that, you know, I wouldn't have trusted him to bring a tray of sandwiches back from there without spilling it. He was so accident-prone when he was at Porto. So... Um, I think going back to the fullbacks, though, it's interesting to see one of the bigger moves in the last week, seeing uh, Levin Kozawa going from Monaco to PSG for 24 million euros. And um, you may have seen a, a, a bit of him when um, Monaco played against um, Arsenal last season. 
terrific coming forward. But he, he trained as a striker, so that's normal. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if you are left-footed, no matter where you play on the pitch, you will get stuck at left-back at some point. <laughs> and, you know, he's the ultimate manifestation of that. He's a really, really good attacker. Defensively, he's borderline embarrassing. Um, I think you kind of expect that to a degree when someone's 22. Like you think how long it took Ashley Cole again, another who was converted from a winger into a fullback. How long it took him to, to to learn how to defend thoroughly and properly. And this was a guy who became arguably the best left back in on the planet at some point. But um, I think that the fact that 4-4-2 has sort of evolved to be usable again, I think is something that has really brought the fullbacks into players attacking players and bizarrely I think that Guardiola's spell at Barcelona kind of informed that to a certain extent even though they didn't play 4-4-2 I think it made people work out how they could play 4-4-2 with a diamond because the sort of sitter they had in Busquets dropped back to become the third centre-back because he had to because the full-backs, whether it was Max Mel yeah. and Alves, so ultimately loads more teams than advertising it on the tin are actually playing with a back three and full-backs are mm. expected mm. to be attacking players so maybe the fact that Kazawa can't defend doesn't really matter oh, well I mean it doesn't really matter for PSG because they're battering people every every week in, in, the, in the French league whether they can get away with that a bit further into the Champions League I think is an interesting thing to watch mm. any more questions uh, from the floor yeah man in the front row man in the front row smashing socks by the way so <laughs> um, what's been your most difficult interview? Uh, the most difficult interview, Jonathan? Uh, yes, no, I mean, there's obviously two ways in which an interview can be difficult. There's ones you expect to be difficult because they're with difficult people or on difficult topics. But the, um, the worst one, uh, let me think, it must have been just before year 2004. Um, <laughs> and England were at a training camp in, I think, Sardinia. And several journalists got, got invited over there we were divided into pairs and we were given two players each to interview and the idea was we pooled the quotes afterwards so um, the, the big selection issue at the time hard as it may seem to, to credit now was Darius Purcell and he had a hamstring issue and you know, was, was he, was he, uh, he going to be fit and we, we watched him train in the morning and Darius Purcell trained apart from the rest of the squad so, yeah, everybody's sort of making their bids for what, what players they want. And because I was very junior, I'm pretty low down that list. So all the sort of glamorous players are gone. But I thought, you Darius Purcell, at least there's a news line there. There's something kind of specifically going on. So I got Darius Purcell and, and Phil Neville. Uh, now, Phil Neville's great because, you know, Phil Neville will just talk. And, he, you know, he's an intelligent bloke. And, and you know, you know you're going to get good copy out of him. Turns out that's not the case with Darius Purcell. LAUGHTER um, so the interview went something like, so Darius, how's the hamstring? Fine. Right, but you were, you were training apart, so it's a problem. Yeah, it's a problem. <laughs> but it, it's fine, yeah. Does it hurt? A bit. If it was a game tomorrow, would you be able to play? Don't know. <laughs> and, and he got 3,000 words out of it. <laughs> and I, I genuinely don't think he was deliberately being unhelpful. I think he... I, I'm told that with Darius Purcell, the, the thing he will open up about and will talk about is, um, he, certainly then, I don't know if he still is, he, he was a born-again Christian and was very fluent in talking about that. About his hamstring? Not so much. <laughs> <laughs> David. 
Uh, well, I, I think I'm just going to have to use this as an excuse to talk about Dave Whelan, really, because uh, <laughs> I, 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 I can't think offhand of a really, really difficult one. And uh, He's quite loose uh, with his time. And, 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 yeah, and, it, and it, it actually wasn't difficult at all, you see. So, um, and I was actually really tired, and I, I didn't even know what was really going on with Malky Mackay, because... Basically, I'd been, I'd been reporting on something else the day before, and I'd been really involved with it, and I didn't even really know that Wigan had hired Malky Mackay until I was listening to Five Live on the way back. And um, Dave Williams had said um, that... He, he'd said something that suggested to me that, that, that he'd been told by the FA that they weren't going to do Malky Mackay for, you know, because, you know... Uh, Obviously, you know, all he'd done, you know, it was, it was only like the worst racism that we've heard from any football figure over the past 25 years. Um, and, and, and so it was literally like, just heard it on the radio and thought, oh, I'll, I'll follow that up tomorrow. I'll, I'm, that sounds outrageous. You know, if the FA is tipping off Dave, so it was really like an FA story that mm. I thought, if the FA is tipping off Dave Whelan that they're not going to do Malcolm McKay, that's bloody outrageous. I'm going to phone Dave Whelan in the morning and, and find out if this is true. So I phoned Dave Whelan in the morning and... Um, he was saying, and I said, have you, have you been tipped off, Dave? You know, it sort of seemed to suggest that you've been tipped off by the... Oh. And he said, he said, absolutely, you, you know, I mean, and the lad's not done a lot wrong. So I said, oh, right. And I, I honestly didn't know what was coming. So I said, oh, right, you mean because it was private, because there were private texts? Ah, oh, they were private, but, you know, I mean... I mean. And at that point, right, <laughs> at, that, at, that, at that point, right, the Daily Mail had broken the Malky Mackay story and had the texts, right? But... They had the text between Malcolm McKay and Ian Moody, the, the head of recruitment at, um, at, Watf, uh, Watf, uh, Cardiff. at Cardiff at the time, sorry. And, um, but they hadn't said whose were whose. They were just email exchanges. So Dave Whelan said, that lad's not done a lot wrong. I mean, you know, he's called that lad at Cardiff a chink. You know. and, I, and when he said that lad... He was actually referring to Vincent Tan, who was about a like, 60-year-old <laughs> billionaire maniac from, uh, for, from Malaysia who owned the club. He's called that ladder chink. And I said, oh, right. So, so it starts to dawn on me that when, when Dave Whelan said he hasn't done a lot wrong, he didn't mean that they were bad messages that were private. He meant that the messages themselves weren't bad. And that's when he said to me... Um, uh, anyone who says they haven't called a Chinese person a chink is lying. So I said, oh, oh, right. I mean, you know, it's like being called a limey, which obviously, you know, a lot, you know, English people just get called limeys all the time. Don't they? That happens a lot. I mean, and we've, we've just had to tolerate that. Anyway, anyway so, so then, I mean, good, you know, he must have got a thick skin being called a limey all his life and putting up with it like that. Anyway, so then, so, that, so then, Dave Williams actually telling me which of the texts were Malky's. So, so I think I must have said to him, so I must have got him, you know, I, I think I must have said to him which were the other ones of, and, um, and he said, well, you know, that thing he said about that agent, about, you know, the Jew, you know, uh, you know, that... I mean, who hasn't said that? Which, to me, actually was like proper virulent anti-Semitism, what Malcolm Mackay had said about... You know, he said about the agent, Phil Smith, nothing like a Jew that sees money slip through his fingers. Like, it doesn't actually get much worse than that. So I just had to sort of, you know... I just had to put to Dave that, you know... Might that not be? I said something like, you know, don't, don't you think some people might you know, find that just a little bit offensive? And, and, and that's when he said the, um, 
you know, the classic, don't you, and his voice dropped, and he said, don't you think that Jewish people, what was it, that Jewish people chase money, chase money, just that little bit more than we do? And that's, that's how the conversation happened. And um, basically, I put the phone down after all, and then, and then he said everything else that he said. And I put the phone down, and I thought, no one knows that I've had this conversation with Dave Whelan. I wasn't told to follow it up, I just decided to follow it up. I've just got, you know, but basically, you've got a responsibility, you know, to report that. And I, I would, you know, I'm always writing about the FA must be stronger, you know, it's great that kick it out a, a tough on it. It's amazing the strides that we've made at fighting racism in football over the years. And if I've got this situation, which, you know, it's not going to be the easiest, you know, I know that it's going to end up being, you know, I'm not saying a difficult story, a difficult situation, but there's only me and him. Uh, but I decided that, you know, that I, ha I had a responsibility to report it. So basically, it was 12 o'clock, I phoned into the Guardian, I said, right, you're not going to believe what Dave Williams just said to me. We got, there was a guy working for the Guardian who used to work for The Sun, he was a very good, very good journalist, he's gone to Telegraph now, but, but he's got very much like, all right, mate, all right, mate, well, that's it, mate, yeah, yeah, get that one in, mate, oh, that's going to be a big story, mate, and it was just like definite, definite sort of thing. And, and so I wrote it, I, I rang the, actually the Chinese centre in Manchester and said, what do you think about being called a chink? And she said, oh, that's terrible, I can't believe anyone's using that language, that reminds me of being beaten up by a skinhead in the 1970s. Because yeah, I wasn't exactly <laughs> Fat Jew that sees money slipping through his fingers, I did actually know, uh, I, I, I knew my way around that, I knew that was offensive, but I wasn't exactly sure. And she told me, yeah, that's deeply offensive. Anyway, so by the time I'd run, run round and written the piece and sent it in, it was 3pm, right? So I spoke to him about 12, wrote it by 3, and by 6, and this is like the power of the media now, we put it up on the website at 6pm, and by something like 6.30, he just spoke to me, he didn't even remember speaking to me, and that's what he told the FA. He didn't remember speaking to me, and by seven, about 6.30, 7 o'clock that night, he had cameras camped right round his house, mm. and he was in the middle of an international incident. There you are. Well, well done, David. Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> we can all agree on that. Excellent stuff. Andy. Um, I'm going to go for cultural misunderstanding as well, rather than uh, right. being dead batted, because we've all, we've all been there through the, the, the uh, combinations of uh, media training and low intelligence. Um, <laughs> although I, I agree with David, I think most, most footballers are, are, are really friendly, if you're, you're friendly to them. Mm. Um, uh, my most difficult interview was one that I actually couldn't use. Um, I uh, interviewed on, on my first gig doing um, filmed interviews after uh, Champions League matches, I, I had Porto versus Fenerbahce, and I did uh, Colin Kazim Richards, oh, yeah. uh, or Kazim Kazim, as he's known to yeah, the rest yeah, of the world. Yeah. So w when I stopped him in the mix zone, which is the <clears> bit <throat> where the players walk through to chat with you, or not chat with you if they don't want to, um, before they exit the stadium onto the bus, but just after they've left the dressing room, you just shout out. And uh, so I went... Colin, Colin, a word. And he, he turned around, and I don't think he spoke much Turkish at the time. It was familiar, um, well, a familiar accent he heard. Yeah, ex yeah. exactly. So he, he, he stopped. And what ensued was uh, what I thought was 10 minutes of film gold. Um, but I realised might have been slightly indecipherable to uh, non-London people when my Portuguese cameraman said, Andy, I never knew you spoke Turkish. <laughs> 
<laughs> and um, yeah, it was all unusable because it was, it was a brilliant chat, but um, unfortunately he libeled everyone he'd ever met <laughs> in, in that 10 minutes, uh, called uh, Lewis Aragonés a uh, bloody old fool for only playing with one up front, and um, said that uh, the Porto number eight was safe. <laughs> <laughs> was that the Argentinian player? <laughs> Uh, Lucha Gonzalez, yeah. Yeah. Did he not say, like, ah, oh, he was fucking wicked or something? And you were like, I can't use that. <laughs> no, no, but I, I, was, I was actually, like, vibing off it. He, well, yeah. he, he went there. You were giving it the old Croydon no, lingo no, as he, well. He went there. Come on, come on, London <laughs> Postcode. He, he went, he went, a number eight was safe, mate. And I was just going, scene, scene. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't help it. <laughs> Fantastic. We've got time for one more question. Uh, does anybody have it? That man right there was first, I'm afraid. Sorry, chap. Here comes the mic. So uh, Pep Guardiola Jeff. completed football this weekend by not playing any defenders. Um, <laughs> why, why is that sort of experiment of bringing a former player through sort of reserves and then first team never really caught on? Sorry. I, 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 so, so Pep Guardiola, yep. brilliant manager. Yep. Yeah. I'm sure we can all agree. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, brilliant job at Barcelona, but he was obviously given his break at Barcelona. Why is that? Oh, sorry. In terms on? of a manager, why, yeah, why, yeah. Is, why, why is why is that never caught on in England or really anywhere else? Well, I mean, Ryan Giggs obviously had a little. Couple yeah, of games. I mean, I, I think there's an issue with. Sorry, do you mean bringing a player through and then becoming the manager of that club? Yeah. Gro- grooming a player, a, a former player, as a manager at the club, which perhaps Man United could be doing with Ryan Giggs. Yeah. So, I mean, so I, players I think, being groomed as, I think as managers. English clubs, particularly, um, there's a real conservatism. There's a real sort of fear of giving a job to somebody young. And, and uh, yeah, the fact that Swansea took a, a gamble on Gary Monk and it's yeah, working so well at the moment, I think is, is again, yeah, great credit to, to the way they, they run and, and uh, the fact that their, their way of playing outweighs personalities. But certainly um, clubs who are seriously considering Champions League qualification, they, they all want a proven manager. They're never going to gamble on anybody anybody young, anybody who's done well, even in the lower leagues. So I think Guardiola is a, is a very special case. I think Barcelona's a very special case. Barcelona's had that way of playing, a quite a unique way of playing, that began in the 70s, was reinforced with, with Cruyff in the early 90s. Guardiola was, was clearly very much um, of, that, of that school. That He grew up in a way that many of the players he'd have been working with uh, grew up. The fact that Cruyff who obviously liked him as a player and made him as captain, although he didn't have a position at Barcelona. Um, it was in the Diego Torres book on Mourinho yeah. that Mourinho was told, no, Cruyff will have the final say, even though he didn't have a position at the club. Um, so I think to expect another Guardiola is, yeah, that, that, that's just an unusual situation. But I think there is a, a general issue with, with top English clubs. They just bring in whatever the flavour of the month is abroad, somebody who's you know, won a Bundesliga or you know, got to a quarter-final of a Champions League. And I think, unfortunately, what happened with David Moyes is only going to reinforce that. There's a distrust of, of British managers who've perhaps succeeded with, with English clubs lower down the, lower down the chain. Mm-hmm. And I think that's reinforced by the, the gulf that exists between the Championship and the Premier League. So uh, a good, young British manager will get his break at a Championship club. So, for instance... Uh, Alex Neal, for instance, at Norwich, you know, start the season fine. Um, it could happen with Eddie Howe at Bournemouth as well. Both start the season fine, but as the season goes on, as pressure starts to tell on squads that aren't the deepest, and they get in a relegation battle, it gets in people's heads. Oh, he's a coach of relegation battle. 
you saw, I mean, I'm not sure he's necessarily a particularly great coach, but Billy Davis's career as a top-flight coach was destroyed by what happened at Derby. And actually, getting Derby promoted was, was an astonishing achievement. What happened with Eddie Boothroyd at Watford, that I remember talking to Eddie Boothroyd and saying, you know, you, do you, does it bother you? You're known as a long-ball coach. He said, well, look at these players. What else should I be? And you know, he's, he's right. Getting, getting up with that Watford side was an astonishing achievement. The fact that he nearly kept them up was also quite an astonishing achievement. But I think this is kind of linked to youth development as well, isn't it, in the case of Guardiola? And that's something that we're not, well, we're not fully yet, invested in yet because, you know, the, the idea with Guardiola is he was a son of the soil who would bring <clears> through the players. And I think it's no coincidence if you look across at Lyon, for example, who are the other great youth academy in, um, in Europe at the moment. You know, if you think uh, eight of their typical starting 11 last season were, were club products. I mean, that's, that's part ideology and development, and that's part having an exceptional generation as, as well. Um, but I think uh, to have someone who is familiar with the academy, who's been a scholar, who can get inside the heads of those players, mm-hmm. is really important. So really Leon nice. had Remy Gard to lead the current lot through. Now they've got Hubert Fournier, who is, is another one you know, who, who came through that academy. So even though it was an external appointment, he understood completely what was expected. And, you know, I, th- I think, f- firstly, we don't have th- that sort of sense of widespread youth development because if we're short of a player and you know you say like you were saying earlier it goes all the way down the Premier League now you just go out and buy them um, but, but I think also it's, it's, it's about time isn't it uh, I think there's no doubt about that when Barcelona make the decision between Guardiola and Mourinho if you read Ferran Soriano's book which is a deeply tedious book so don't but <laughs> the one good bit of it is he, he, he lists the nine criteria that Barcelona judge the candidates on and one of, one of those criteria was a willingness to, to bring through academy products. So I think of the nine, Guardiola ticked eight boxes and Mourinho ticked six. And that was obviously one where Guardiola got a tick and, um, and Mourinho didn't. I, I think it's not that surprising that uh, players don't make the step up to be managers very often and that it very, very rarely works. And Guardiola's an exception in a lot of ways. And, but... What I think is, um, what I've observed not just in football but in in other walks of life is that sometimes a braver appointment can be from within rather than getting, like you say, you know, the the usual suspects from somewhere who are putting themselves as a prime candidate. People who are in that culture and can step up to become the manager. And I'm very surprised that more clubs don't try and do that. Like, Like you're saying that United might be trying to do with gigs but... You know, I'm not. I'm not sure how systematic that is. Now, if you look at Liverpool, um, when obviously, well, when I was growing up, probably older than, than some people here, but I mean, that was Bill Shank. When Bill Shankly <coughs> decided to retire, it was, an, and it is done well in the David Peace Red or Dead book that we were talking about before. Um, people we're like talking about pe- offstage. Pe- so you haven't forgotten pe- that, pe- pe- <laughs> Sorry, that we were talking about before. People like Brian Clough, Don Revy. Uh, in the book, I don't know how true it is. He has Bill Shankly saying, "Who have you been ta- Who have you been interviewing? Brian Clough, Don Revy, you know the the prime candidates." And they went for Bob Paisley, who was a very uh, quiet. He was a genuinely quiet man. Had been the trainer and the coach all those years, carrying the bags of balls. And I was once on, um, talking to Ronnie Whelan. I had a great chat with Ronnie Whelan. It was really interesting and funny. And he and, and you know you looked at Bob Paisley, and he was a man of so few words, and he was so basically. Uh, you know, seems so inarticulate, like just, just you know, like old guy in a cardigan and slippers, basically. 
And you, know, you think, what is his magic? What was it? He was more successful than Shankly. And Ronnie Whelan didn't really give me, like a lot of Clough's players don't, he didn't really tell me what the magic was. And he said that when Bob Paisley was, doing a was giving a team talk, Ronnie Whelan, when he was new to the first team, got told by one of the other Liverpool players, come on, you've got to, you know, you've got to see this. And he said that basically when Bob Paisley was, was giving a team talk, all the Liverpool players had their heads down like that. You could just see their shoulders going up like that because everyone was with giggling, everyone had the giggles. But this guy was the most, is, is he still the most successful British manager ever? I think he won three of the European Cups, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and then that was the brilliant appointment, the number two, wasn't it? Rather than going for the prime, the, the big names. Mm -hmm. And then they tried to do it again with Joe Fagan and he wasn't quite up to it. And then well, I, 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 I think, I think that the stop. I mean, well, he, he wouldn't, he, he won a European Cup. Yeah, but he was only then, the manager then, for a year or so. Yeah, but that's because of Heisel. Chaps, I'm afraid that our right, time is yeah. rapidly coming to an end. So we've got time just for, for, for one more, more question, which I'm going to ask myself. Um, if you could go back in time and change a moment or, or event or a result from footballing history, what would it be? Less than a minute each. Jonathan. Okay, year 2004, the, the press always had a sweepstake, and you put 10 years in the pot. And you had to predict the score, the first score, in the minute of the first goal. Now it was a double rollover because England in the group stage, nobody predicted the 3-0 win against Switzerland, nobody predicted the 4-2 against Croatia. So they're playing Portugal in the quarter-final. And I'd gone, Portugal to win 2-1, Owen to score first, eight minutes. It's 1,400 euros in the pot. So that moment when Frank Lampard made me, A, rewrite a perfectly good match report <laughs> with what turned out to be a pointless equaliser and cost me 1,400 euros... That moment. And what made it worse was, <laughs> the deadline was so tight for the penalty shootout that I, ha I had it written, and I just had a slot in the names of, of who'd taken the, you know, the, the, the penalty that missed, the penalty that scored. And I looked up, I saw Nunya Valente walking forward, and I kind of Nunya Valente look up, balls in the back of the net, file it, and it turns out Nunya Valente walked 10 yards forward and turned back, and Ricardo, the goalkeeper, which is actually quite a key part of the story, had gone up and taken the penalty, and that did not feature in my match report until uh. <laughs> 20 minutes later when I, I phoned through in a panic. Yeah. As, a, as a question that press comes, made me realise I got horribly, horribly wrong. Yeah, I have to say, you've changed your tune dramatically on that question which we asked before because you, you mentioned uh, if uh, a Dutch player had scored Rob uh, yeah, in the 1978 final right at the end against Argentina. Um, cut a long story short, it would have uh, pretty much halted the military junta in Argentina. And if you want more on that, you can buy my forthcoming book on yeah. this Argentina <laughs> football, which will be out in March. <laughs> there we are. David. Yeah, well, uh, uh, I've, I've always been, um, since I started working as a journalist and writing about football um, rather than enjoying watching it and playing it, absolutely obsessed with uh, the fact that, as Jonathan mentioned in passing earlier, our football association, who are the governing body of football, uh, for for completely heroically misguided uh, and myopic reasons, supported the first division clubs in their breakaway from the football league, which meant that when the big money came into football, whether it was going to be from ITV or Sky, instead of it being shared through football, they've had the money in the Premier League. And most of the things that I really don't like about uh, English football, like the fact that the clubs have been sold as investments to mm. owners who've just been interested in football, have flown have flown from the Premier League breakaway. So if there's one moment that I could change out of a great many choices, it's a lovely question, um, but if I was ruler of time and football for the day, I would stop the FA making that heroically misguided decision and keep English football together. Yeah. More honourable than your suggestion, <laughs> 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 Not just make 1,400 euros. <laughs> <laughs>
I think what I could have done with it. Yeah. <laughs> Andy. I'm going to go World Cup as well, not Rob Runsonbrink, um, but perhaps an obvious goal that people will remember. I, I would scrub Diego Maradona's handball goal Ooh. from the quarter-final goal um, and for in, in 1986. You read my forthcoming book. <laughs> <laughs> I look like a plant now, don't I? Um, but but not because England would go through. I, I'm, I'm still not convinced they would have won the game. But I just think it is Sully's uh, Maradona's reputation as a footballer mm-hmm. not as a bloke to and colors the way he's that done that himself hasn't he yeah, yeah. 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 So what, what would you change out of his reputation <laughs> <laughs> to, to just absurd level really in this yeah. country particularly and um i just remember barry davis's grudging oh we have to say that was magnificent well bloody right you have to say the second goal was magnificent <laughs> it's one of the best goals ever scored in the world cup finals mm. I, I just think it, it's such a shame that people associate him uh, with, with that, rather than all the brilliant stuff that he did for Argentina and, and, and Napoli, because he is my, my favourite player ever. I associate him with shooting journalists with an air rifle, personally. <laughs> but, you know, that's just me. Uh, we've come to the end of our time. Thank you very much indeed uh, for coming out. Thank you very much for your questions. Thank you, of course, to the Football Museum, the Manchester Football Writing Festival. It's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, the new Blizzard is out on general sale next week, so do snap that up. You'd be ridiculous. Not too quite frankly. Thank you very much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Good night and God bless.